Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was in a neurodiverse relationship for 32 years. We were married for 30, and we didn't find out until our 29th year of marriage that we were a neurodiverse couple. And we have an amazing 25-year-old who's on her own and thriving, and I'm here with my co-host, Manisa. Hi, I am Manisa. I've been in a neurodiverse relationship for eight years, married for six years, and while in graduate school to become a board-certified behavior analyst, I noticed that my spouse was on the spectrum. Yeah, so we are really excited to share with you a wonderful podcast episode with a guest that we are both thrilled to talk to. So this one may go longer than an hour, and we're so thrilled to have Michael John Carley with us today. And Michael is an author of three books. We're going to talk about one of them in particular. And he was the founder and first executive director of the Global and Regional Asperger Syndrome Partnership, and that was called GRASP. And he did that for 10 years between 2003 and 2013. He has appeared in the media on NPR and the New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, and on and on. And if you want to see his whole resume and bio, um, you can go to his website, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast. But Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh my gosh, Mona. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you know, being on, you know, yours and Manisa's podcast is uh, a thrill. And just thank you so very much for inviting me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am so excited to have this conversation because Manisa and I have barely touched the surface of the topic we're going to talk about. And I want to tell our listeners that your latest book, which just came out and I've had the pleasure of reading is called, it's got a long title, The Book of Happy, Positive and Confident Sex for Adults on the Autism Spectrum and Beyond. Woohoo! And literally you touch on everything from A to Z. So Manisa and I both want to know, what brought you to this space to want to write a comprehensive book like this at this point in your career? Do you mind sharing that, Michael? Not at all. Not at all. So as you mentioned, I sort of got my start in this career by running um, the world's largest membership organization for adults on the spectrum at the time, which was GRASP. And during the 10 years, you're, you know, it's not because you're any great brain, but you're just because of your job, you're hearing more stories from adults on the spectrum than probably anybody in the world. You know, back mm -hmm. then, Tony Atwood would hear more stories before they were diagnosed. I would hear more stories after they were diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And again, not because I'm doing anything brilliant, just the nature of my job. And so you you kind of get a good feel for what the you know problematic areas are amongst you know all the folks on the spectrum out there you know and and you know where are the strengths where are the weaknesses and in addition to employment during those 10 years i clearly was really disturbed um, by a couple of things that i saw and i think a couple of things that i learned too mm -hmm. I, I was you know somewhat of a stranger to this world. But initially, for instance, I, you know, there were sort of two areas that would creep up. Number one would be when, let's say the mother of, you know, a man on the spectrum would call up and say, 
for example, my son is 35 and mm -hmm. he's never had sex before. And do you know of any disability friendly sex workers that I can steer him to? Mm. That's that's like a little uh, mm. what, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a moment there. And so, and at first, like I said, I was kind of new to all this. So I was like, well, you know, how do I feel about this? Sure. And I think the only ethical conundrum that I was thinking about at the time was what if this person ends up falling in love with the sex worker because they're just, you know, emotionally not prepared for, you know, all the, the subtleties and stuff like that. And, you know, that leads to heartache. And what if that ends up being the only sexual experience the person has in their life? Would it have been better to, you know, um, maybe have never had a sexual experience? And the answer to the last question was a clear, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. life on planet earth, you know, experience life you know go out mm -hmm. there do things, get out on a let limb if you ever come see me you know in the presentations i do i always finish with a quote from helen keller which i absolutely love which is that security is a superstition it does not exist in nature life is either a daring adventure or nothing mm. now that's love said, it love it yep that said <laughs> though i go to my wife and i'm like sharing this conundrum with her, you know, and I'm just like, wow, you know, I guess maybe it's my responsibility to, you know, go find, you know, a couple of disability friendly sex workers to put in the Rolodex. And she said, well, you're an executive director. Mm -hmm. Do you want to throw away your career to be a pimp? Mm -hmm. I know mm. I read that in the book and I laughed. Yeah, that's not yeah. exactly where you want to end up, you know, as a lead story on the New York Times, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I basically said, this is something I'm going to deal with when I'm not an executive director someday. But the second thing that was happening during my grasp years was I was getting a lot of calls from the sex workers themselves saying, mm -hmm. hey, I got diagnosed, just like any mm -hmm. other. Sure. And I was getting more than one call from recognized adult film stars mm -hmm. and who were saying, hey, I just got diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, you got clear wind after you did a small amount of investigation that there was an enormous amount of developmental disabilities running through the adult film industry. And, you know, it ran the gamut of everybody's visceral reactions to such, such a world. There were of course people that wanted to get out and there were other people that were like, you know what? I like sex and I suck at relationships and I can make a ton of money this way. What's, sure. what's the problem? Sure. Uh, so, you know, all of these things basically led me to realize that I really, really wanted to, um, you know, focus on this, especially, um, I actually should have said a third thing, which was that we are so negative in how we teach this subject. And especially when you think of how literal our population of people are, Mm -hmm. And if you want to, I, I think one of the things, you know, that I'm really trying to do in addition to provide, you know, really clear examples of how to have happy sex for people on the spectrum, it's mm -hmm. to really reframe the conversation away from what I call distinctly American disclaimers, you know, about explaining sex within the context of our punitive sex offender laws, explaining sex within the context of avoiding sexual assault, explaining sex within the context of unwanted pregnancies or avoiding a stalking charge. Okay. Mm, yeah. We, we can't say sex is great in this country without saying, but. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's such an awful and mean thing to do 
to people who may never have a great career, who may never have the blowout love affair, and who may not have fabulous kids. Sex could actually be the best thing they ever experienced their in their lives. And because we're afraid of the emotional fallout when we're raising them, that we're going to deny them this, I just think that's the most abhorrent thing I ever saw or realized as a light bulb above the head in, in, in the years that I was doing Grasp. And I know I'm, I'm talking for a long time, but this is a no, really album out there, so I apologize. No. But every time I would have an instinct about that, you know, Grasp survived because we really existed on ideas about partner, partner, partner. Mm -hmm. And when I would go to folks who were really reputable in, in, in the world, and I was very lucky I had access to them, and usually they were like, Michael, Don, great idea. Let's, you know, let's work it into this program. Let's you know, write a paper together, let's do a project, blah, 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 blah. On this subject, they were all like, Michael, John, we love you, but for your own survival, you really need to shut up about this one. Wow. 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 That's unfortunate. <laughs> That's really, really unfortunate. But I understand that because if you were to talk to my daughter when she was in middle school, they had a sex ed class. And the sex ed class really was all about scaring them into not having sex. Exactly. And the last day of the sex ed class was a film where the seventh graders watched a woman go through childbirth, literally go through childbirth from the end of the vagina, not from the head, from where yeah. the baby was coming out. And my daughter came home and told me about that. I marched into the principal's office, talked to the science teacher who was teaching sex ed. And I'm like, no, no, this is not okay. I fought it. You know, I went to the school board. I talked to the school board. Nothing changed. I live in a very, very conservative area. But you're scaring seventh graders into not having sex by showing them, you know, childbirth films. It's horrible. Well, that, that's actually nothing compared to sometimes what some of the abstinence programs, you know, that they still oh, yeah. have in the draconian Midwest yeah. in certain sections of it will we'll put out there. You know, if you read my book, you you read the, the story about the Northwestern uh, or yeah, Northwestern University professor who um, whose ninth grade son was texting her what he was being taught in the abstinence class that he was going to disguise as sex ed. They had an abstinence program hired to do sex ed. It's horrible. And, and she, you know, as was her right, decided to attend the class. And she ended up texting or tweeting um, some of the things that she was hearing uh, in this particular class. She had 11,000 followers by the end of the day. Wow. Because wow. really the, the, the people were saying things like, um, and, and if you really analyze what I'm about to say, you will get how horrible what, the, what this instructor said to the class was. He said, you know, if a girl tells you that she doesn't want to have sex with you, that's the girl you want to marry. Wow. Wow. You know, talking right there. Let's go. My, Michael, I, you know, yeah. And I'm a social worker. And, you know, the work I've done has been with primarily nonprofits where I'm always trying to educate people so that they can live their best lives. And it's just, it's a travesty. And in 2022, I'm so glad that you published this book. And I think it's going to help 
so many of our listeners because you decided to go out there. And, and the wonderful thing is you published the book with Neurodiversity Press. So um, it's you are supporting a business that is trying to change the paradigm and the information that's going out to the world, which I think is awesome, too. And I want to talk about communication because we're talking about the communication that is shared with students. We're talking about the communication that you got from parents of adults who are, were, are autistic. You're talking about the communication you had with the community at large and they tried, it, tried to shut you up and say, don't do this. But there's another kind of communication that I think uh, Manisa and I are really interested in talking to you about. And that's the communication that goes on in relationships. Yes. Because this podcast, we have mentioned sex very superficially and sexual relations and physical intimacy. But one of the things that I loved um, that you mentioned in your book was for the person on the spectrum to actually learn how to communicate with their partner so they could ask them to teach them. Because we know, and and I know there's probably a lot of research that you know about, that many of um, the partners who come into a relationship who are neurodivergent may not have a lot of experience or maybe they've had experience with prostitutes or it hasn't been the best experience, but they fall in love or they are in a serious monogamous relationship or even a polyamorous relationship, but they want to be the best lover. They want to be the best partner. What kind of communication is most helpful to get that, to get both people feeling safe about building a strong physical and sexual relationship thoughts well number one i think that i'm always surprised that when i talk to people about this that when you can convince them that you're only going to be thought of you know whatever the heck quote-unquote great lover means status because it's going to be you know different to everybody sure. um that whenever you can focus on pleasing another person Mm -hmm. as opposed to worrying about what your equipment is going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, we so often go into these relationships worried about, you know, our junk's performance, our junk's ability to do X, Y, or Z and stuff like that. And I think that, you know, especially from a communication perspective, you know, if we're really just trying to focus on the other person, not only does that take some of the, you know, the performance anxiety off of what, you know, will be you know accomplishing in terms of our own ability to pleasure ourselves through this experience but will also be i think really doing something that's very endearing to our partner and make them like us more mm -hmm. you know because you are kind of asking a question and whether you do it you know verbally which i think is great um it's a little i understand it's a little awkward for some people you know to just sure. jump into you know no twirl your tongue this way um you know that's just not gonna you know, be, be the great first date. Um, right. But the whole notion of focusing on the other person, I think, is one that is surprisingly uh, new to a lot mm -hmm. of people. I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about, about that, Michael, as I'm thinking about neurodiverse relationships and emotional reciprocity and some of the challenges with that, that, you know, being able to uh, 
give what you're receiving and often having those lines blurred and not really knowing. And now you have this very sensory elevated activity and we're not even talking about actual intercourse yet, you know, just the anticipation of it, the, as you say, the touching, the kissing and all these things. And I can imagine with someone on the spectrum, that's very difficult to be able to pay attention to everything that's happening in the moment, how their body feels when it's touched, uh, thinking about what they look like to the other person and are they giving the other person enough eye contact? It's just, it's almost like sensory overload. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think that <laughs> I think maybe now's the time, like, for me to drop, you know, one particular bomb because, you know, on the conversation, which is that I think that, and I apologize to the both of you because this is primarily a relationship po po podcast, but we usually do talk about sex within the context of its relationship to relationships, and we usually try to talk about them together. And this is based somewhat in, you know, the historical, well, sex has to, you know, be equated with love, you know, myth a little bit. It's got some social origins in there. But in, I don't mean to de delineate its value because obviously it's going to really enhance a, a, a relationship and it could actually, you know, accelerate a relationship as well. Um, but I would argue that especially for people on the spectrum, that relationships are 50 million times more complicated than mm. sex. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I'm trying to do to reframe the conversation is teach sex separately mm. from relationships. And I think that especially is, you know, I'm a boring straight guy, but um, <laughs> I am so jealous of LGBTQ relationships because they don't have all the garbage to unlearn mm -hmm. before they can get to the pure communication. You know, and it's not just like, you know, all of the, you know, stereotypical criticisms that we had, you know, about men and, you know, you know, putting notches in their belt and stuff like that. And of course, that was stupid and nonsensical. Um, but you know, straight females were just as much at fault because, oh, well, he should have just understood. Right. Well, he should have just understood, you know, knew what, you know, pleased my particular vagina as opposed right. to another person's vagina. Oh, he should, you know, that whole, you know, thing. Um, is something that, you know, was not only an affront to all humanity, I think, but especially was, you know, the whole nonverbal communication issue that people who are neurodiverse are inevitably going to struggle with even more than, than, the, than the straight, you know, uh, neurotypical people. Yeah. And, and, you know, we didn't mention this at the beginning, but Michael, do you want to share your neurodiversity status and kind of how you found out you know, after your son's diagnosis, do you want to share a little bit about that? Because Oh, sure. You know, it's, you know, it's how I got into, you know, was in the field. I mean, I was, uh, I was a starving playwright a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I, but my stupid day job, quote unquote, was a little bit more interesting than being a waiter. Um, I was a minor league diplomat operating out of the UN. I was the UN representative for basically the country's biggest left-wing veterans organization at the time they were just called veterans for peace and um so and it was you know really interesting work it was you know it Bosnia right after you know they signed the peace agreements and the biggest project i did was in iraq before the invasion repairing water treatment facilities in an area where the sanctions were just you know killing so many different civilians 
And my son and I got diagnosed a week apart from one another in late 2000. Prior, he had been one of these kids that there was a speech delay, motor skills issues. Um, you know, this is the year 2000, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's stacking the bulk dog food cans that we buy, you know, we did these pyramids, you know, at age two years old. So we knew something was going on. And because of the genetic nature of all this stuff, they just were looking at dear old daddy out of the corner of their eyes and another. Um, I will tell you, though, that uh, a couple of days after I got diagnosed, I was the second of the two diagnoses. And a colleague at the UN got on an elevator with me Mm -hmm. um, to go down to the ground floor. And we started talking. And I told her about my son's diagnosis. And I didn't tell her about mine because I wasn't going to do that, you know, <laughs> you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so we started talking about the condition and she surprised me. She totally threw me for a loop because it turns out she knew more than I thought she did. And she mm-hmm. goes, well, isn't that genetic? <laughs> the cat's out like, the bed yeah. now, Michael. I'm like, oh, you know, I got, you know, my finger in the cookie jar, whatever you want to call it. And I'm sputtering words like, oh, well, I don't know. No, not really. I don't think it's <laughs> You know, just, and I'll never forget um, when the elevator landed and she, she went out first and the image of her back is frozen in my memory because I knew that at that moment I had just stabbed my own son in the back. Mm. What garbage it would be for me to ever say to him, you should be proud of who you are if I was going to be such a coward. Wow. Wow. That's a great awareness. Yeah, that really well, is. The career change was in motion at that moment, I think. Wow. And and look at how far you've come. I mean, that was 22 years ago. Yeah. And, or, well, I, I'm going to say just reading the book that I just finished, um, that you're so open and upfront about so many things that are really controversial. And I want to talk about a few of the more controversial issues that you talk about in the book, because, you know, you may not think you've come very far, but, you you know, not many people would put out a book like this, Michael. And I think it's going to help, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, if not millions, And I think one of the things that I think is really interesting, I run um, two monthly support groups for neurotypical partners. And one of the things I hear over and over again is how little sex they're having in their relationship, whether it's a marriage or a partnership. And they're really trying to figure out what happened because many of them were having good sex, possibly great sex, before they moved in with each other. And then all of a sudden things change and they're missing the partner that they had who they were really physically connected to. And so would you mind talking a little bit about what you know, like what could change in those situations? You know, maybe there might be a person who's asexual, who's just trying to um, succeed in the relationship because they're going through the motions or they're masking and then they're able to be their true selves when they get in the relationship. What do you, what do you, what would you say to some of those women who are struggling to figure out what went wrong and what they could do differently? 
Well, I think it goes back to the communication issues, because if there's that drastic a difference from when the relationship started to where we are now, then they there has to be an answer somewhere that or a question that needs to be asked. Hey, you know, this isn't what our life was like before we moved in together. What's changed? And if they're really struggling to get an answer about what has changed, um, whether or not there is maybe, you know, something medical, you know, that's going on that their mm. the partner is somewhat ashamed about. Um, asexuality, usually, you know, before um, you enter a relationship, I think the cases of asexual um, awareness in a person, it's, it's not like one of those things that kind of changes in you. I think mm -hmm. in most cases, you know, early on that you're just not into sex. So the great sex, you know, that happened before everybody moved in together, um, kind of almost proves that that would be a really tough thing to be the, the problem. Um, you know, so the partner that, you know, just isn't as interested anymore, they must have the capacity to acknowledge that there's a big difference between, you know, what they're doing now and, you know, how much they're into their partner now or, or feeling, you know, a libido for anything um, than existed prior. I would, I would say though, that, you know, Sometimes I think the, nerd, the, the, the banal stuff that happens to everybody, you know, kind of, you know, we overthink it when it happens in the neurodiversity world. And the sad thing is just that, you know, that person is just not sexually attracted to you anymore. And mm. that could be the case. And if so, then maybe there's a really painful conversation that needs to, to happen. Um, and whether it's about opening up the relationship or whether it's about breaking up, you know, I don't know. Um, I will state this, though. It was interesting that you discovered um, such a majority of, of uh, you know, the neurodiverse males that aren't into it as much. And that happens. I'm, the one thing that I found a lot from running groups, from, you know, talking to, you know, again, more people on the planet, you know, than, than <laughs> anybody else at the time, is that I think it's just very, very hard to find, you know, folks that are kind of in the middle we're in this population where it just seems like there's an equal amount of people that you know want to have sex five times in their life and people that want to have sex five times a day mm -hmm. you know we've got plenty of those so you know if the women that you're talking to you know are, are despondent that maybe if it's best for the relationship to break up then you know there's there's other fish in the sea that could give them the opposite problem too I wanted to say too that I think uh, sometimes a lot of women um, who the, the neurotypicals in the relationship they feel like with their partner their neurodiverse partner that sex is somewhat mechanical and not emotional right um, not that you have to have this you know walk into the lilies you know every single time <laughs> that you have sex love that okay <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's just, you know, what they say, hit it and quit it and we're done. Um, yeah. But I think when, when, that, when that is happening more often and there is no um, bond being felt, it, it almost becomes like, is this a service? And so then it's hard for the neurotypical to, to get their needs met because we are wired a lot differently than the neurodiverse spouse. We, we are looking for that connection. We are looking for the pillow talk. And I know sometimes when you have the conversations outside of the bedroom, it makes it even more difficult because 
now the neurodiverse partner feels like they have to perform. So, okay, now I have to, you know, do this thing that you've requested. And then once it's over, I've got to find a way to connect with you with my words and it just becomes overwhelming. So I think it is very, um, I think it's awesome that, that your book has resources to like help us learn how to navigate this. I know I, I can just speak for myself and my husband and I around year four and he started saying, well, we should put it on the calendar. I thought, well, how boring is that? <laughs> You know, aren't you supposed to just meet me at the door and, you know, toss me all around the living room like they do in the movies? Of course, we realize that's not realistic. Okay, we I get that. But uh, it does require I'll speak for me a different way of thinking if you do want it to work. Like you said, you can't just have one person that wants sex all the time and then one person that doesn't want sex at all. You, You do have to meet somewhere in the middle and it does require a conversation. I think the hard part is having the conversation because you're not quite knowing what it is you want to talk about or you're just talking about too much. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, great point. Um, I, would, I think my answer to that would be that I think all sides that you've just described, Manisa, are a little bit under the, the trap of thinking that there are good ways of having sex and bad ways of having sex. Mm-hmm. And obviously, to the individual, of course, this is going to matter. Um, but if the re- in the relationship, see, I think this is really all just about all of it being good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the romantic, you know, I just love you sloppy, you know, just tears flowing because everybody's had a bad thing going <laughs> on. You know, the porn movie, you know, the calendar or the, you know, hold on, honey, this will only take a second. but you know it's really it's really you know if you can fit all of that into the life then I think that that's you know that's the best sex life there is mm-hmm. and maybe the first step to talking with one another um, is is to say I think we both have ideas about how sex is supposed to go down and I wonder if maybe we shouldn't and maybe we should re-examine you know what are maybe some ways to have sex that neither one of us has thought of before mm-hmm. let's go look at that together you know let's go look at you know if you've never done it by a calendar doing it by a calendar if you've never done it um only unless you're in just this really deep emotional connection moment mm-hmm. i mean all this sort of stuff you know playing around with it you know like and I think sometimes, you know, it's also fun to, you know, we're talking about the quality, but I think it's also fun to play around with the quantity too, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you do have it, you know, where, well, let's just tease the crap out of each other for a week and then, mm-hmm. or <laughs> let's do it twice a day for a week and see yeah. how that feels, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And then you get, you know, laughter about how exhausted you are, laughter about how just, you know, you know, you're going through blue balls in the worst possible manner. <laughs> so it becomes like a fun part of your life as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, this chore. I mean, it's really supposed to be something that, you know, is consuming and, and you know, tying the two of you together, whether it's the anticipation of the act or the actual act. But at the same point, not one in which one partner's ever should feel shortchanged. And if that's the case, then again, I think we got to maybe look into the painful conversation. And I think that's the delicate part, Michael, because 
I mean, I don't care who you are, neuro, you know, neurodiverse or neurotypical. Nobody wants to hear a conversation about how to improve, you know, uh, their sexual performance, because I think you automatically assume like, oh, I didn't do a good job. It really takes a mature, evolved person to hear that and to almost feel grateful, like, oh, this is awesome. Now you're telling me, you know, ways in which we can make it better. But I think with initially it just kind of comes, it comes, it comes off as I'm not doing a good job. I'm not pleasing my partner. And then we got to, you know, deal through all of that before we can even feel safe to talk to our partner. And that, Manisa, is exactly the type of painful conversation that I don't think we can avoid. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree. Parts of the conversation is that, is there a way to avoid the painful conversation? And I don't think it's such a horrible thing if the answer is no. I I agree. I agree. And, and I, I will say that, and I can't remember when, and you know, if my daughter listens to this episode, she's going to gag, but that's okay. Cause I don't think she listens to most of them, but I remember in my marriage um, when my ex brought the idea of toys, he, he, he just brought it up. I think it was early in our marriage that he wanted to buy some toys. And he, I know he was hesitant. I know he was a little scared to bring it up. But I'm like, I'm not buying them. If you want to buy them, you can buy them. And these were, this was in the days when you couldn't just order it off of Amazon, right? Right. So he had to go to the store and and get things. I wasn't going with him and he had to bring them back. And at first it was very, very difficult for me to be open to that because it was so foreign to me. It wasn't something, you know, I had really talked about with anybody in my family or friends or anything. But it was the greatest addition to our sex life. And so I want to share with our listeners that, you know, having that conversation, I think, can be about maybe each person sharing something they would like to do in your sexual repertoire. And before even talking about saying, I'm not going to judge you, you know, I really want to know what you're interested in, maybe what what fantasies you have or whatever, maybe one thing at a time, don't overload your partner. But you talk about, you talk about kinks and you talk about fetishes. And I think as a society, we are afraid. uh, Well, I should say in the United States, we're afraid to talk about these things that we fantasize about that could bring a whole other, um, level or bring up the level of our sexual relations because we think that our partner might not be supportive or might think we're crazy or kinky or whatever. So do you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I I think it's really important for for all relationships. Yeah. I mean, first off, thank you so much for sharing that, Mona. Um, I really, really appreciate that. I would say that in addition to toys, you know, that maybe just, you know, an investigation too between the two people, you know, into porn together, just even if it's just mm-hmm. to laugh, you know, your heads off together and have some, yep. you know, fun that way. Um, but I think especially trying to make sure that you're able to ask the question, um, can we do this mm-hmm. is, you know, absolutely essential. And, you know, if, if there's this fear, like you're going to be, you have your, your, your kink or your need, um, invalidated verbally somehow, then there's something wrong with the relationship. 
Mm. Um, and so I think that a lot of the fear factor really plays in and Manisa, you were saying something actually that I was thinking of about like the percentage of, you know, discomfort and where it comes from. Like, mm-hmm. well, actually we'll stay on porn with it for that. Um, if I was to, you know, really analyze, let's say, and I'm just thinking of this number out of my head, 15% of the population of the United States that say they're really, really uncomfortable watching porn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably guesstimate that about only 3% um, are really uncomfortable to the point where they're really not going to be able to watch it. I would say the other 12% either feel a need to project the image of somebody who's really uncomfortable watching porn because mm-hmm. of the cultural, you know, certain atmosphere that they find themselves in or grew up in, mm-hmm. um, but also just the person that really needs to be told by their partner it's okay. Mm. You know, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not, you know, this is, shouldn't be something that's threatening to you. Um, let's watch it together and we can, you know, watch the crazy stuff or we can watch, you know, the just, you know, one-on-one normal, you know, vaginal sex, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, and there's also, I think that the unlearning part from an intellectual capacity um, is really something that's another area that can ease up people. If you know the history, if like when we were talking about, especially the American attitudes, you know, versus mm-hmm. French attitudes versus Danish attitudes, and okay, fine, you want to find you know a, a culture that's more sex negative than America, go for it. You know, having conversations like this just sort of opens up the ripples too, so that um, you get the sense of distance of this as a topic. Uh, before you start, you know, working into exactly what you, what needs you feel you aren't getting from your partner. Um, and in addition to, you know, to that, I mean, Mona had brought up the BDSM angle. Um, and, you know, as I say in the book, you know, this is something that we feel more comfortable laughing at usually, you know, the mm-hmm. TV sitcom where, you know, the the white guy in his fifties, you know, is caught, you know, with straps and he's got an apple stuck in his mouth and a woman is whipping laugh, <laughs> you know, and that sort of thing. And, you know, my, you know, investigation of that community, they are as rules-based and as clear in their co- communication. They are healthy. They mm-hmm. are very, very healthy about this subject. They know I, what they want. Yeah. They know what they, they want. Well, not only that, I think they're actually pretty sensitive to other people about how they suggest things. And I think they're pretty cool with rejection. Um, mm-hmm. I think that really the, the the most threatening thing, I think, which I think is starting to deteriorate, actually, in a, in a good sign, that you see is the, the idea of the other, especially mm-hmm. for, you know, because we are mostly a monogamous nation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... The answer is not to open up the relationship, but sometimes the answer is to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And I, you know, before um, my ex and I knew we were neurodiverse, uh, and I think I may have talked about this on another podcast, but I'm not sure, but I'm going to share it with our listeners because I think it was a really important discussion that we had. I didn't feel like I had the emotional reciprocity that I needed. And, um, the place where I got that emotional connection was in, in the bedroom. 
we had great sex until we divorced. But that's where I got the emotional reciprocity, not necessarily outside the bedroom. And one of the things I suggested to my ex is that we open the relationship up. And um, I felt that maybe we could have a polyamorous relationship and um, I could get my emotional needs met from another man and my sexual needs met from my husband at the time. And it, I know it, it kind of freaked him out, the fact that I even brought it up. But, you know, I think in a neurodivergent re- relationship or a neurodiverse relationship where one person or both people aren't getting their needs met, whether it's the sexual needs or the emotional needs or one is into kink and the other's not open or whatever it is, if they can have that conversation, I think that there definitely could be other options that they haven't necessarily thought about or they've thought about and haven't felt comfortable discussing. And I do think just like we've talked about um, with other couples where they live in separate apartments or houses but they're still married and they're in a neurodiverse relationship that works if you feel comfortable talking about other options for sex and and physical intimacy there's a whole spectrum there's a whole slew so do you mind talking about like what you found from the folks that you talked about who were either um, in the lifestyle, which is what they call it now, swinging or in open relationships or polyamory. What did you find um, was most interesting about that? Well, I guess, you know, each one of those particular, you know, options, you know, for your sex life really has its own inimitable um, nuances. Sure. Like, for instance, you know, you know, one of the things that I think is is really the golden rule to having the conversations about the opening things up is that you can cheat in a polyamorous relationship. Oh yeah. You know, there are rules, you know, you make up the rules and you come to an agreement and you agree on the rules. And if you break them, then that's cheating. Um, And the rules sometimes revolve around, you know, do we share the experiences that we have outside the marriage or not? Do we, you know, have people that are considered secondary relationships that we can actually say that we also love in addition mm-hmm. to each other, um, do we, you know, if we're really polyamorous, do we have, you know, maybe closed circles? Do we have open circles? Do we have, you know, there's such variation. And, you know, these are usually bound by agreements and mm-hmm. bound by communication. And I think sometimes that that's actually relieving, especially to folks on the spectrum that may be intimidated or anybody that may be intimidated by this idea is that there are still rules that you have to mutually agree to in order for this to happen. And because I think that, you know, whenever, when somebody who's been raised just on monogamy, here's the word polyamory, they immediately think cheating. Right. It's and true. Once, you know, and once they finally, you know, talk about it and, you know, it's not like there aren't, you know, painful jealousies to work through maybe, sure. um, you know, and, you know, th- things that feel threatening, like, you know, equipment size, you know, performances, you know, bigger orgasms, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's terrifying for a lot of people, but if they can talk about them, you know, it just makes all the relationships more offer. You know, you look at something, for instance, like um, swinging, you mentioned Mona. I think the fascinating thing about swinging is that it's something that you do with your partner. Right. Absolutely. You're not doing it and, you know, just going out and meeting somebody else and stuff like that. 
you know, you're, you're going to this, you know, usually a house or an event or a place, you know, together, um, whatever happens, happens. And, you know, you go home together right. and you talk about it probably. And hopefully, you know, you're having a really fun, funny conversation about it. Right. Um, and, you know, so I, I think that all of these avenues, there's so many benefits, um, to both monogamy and to polyamory. And I'll be honest with you, Mona, that the chapter I'm most proud of is, um, I forget what number it is, but um, uh, it's to be monogamous or not to be monogamous. That's my favorite mm-hmm. chapter of the book. And I was so proud just of that list. You know what, what the heck? I might go find it. <laughs> yeah, I have the book in front of me. Oh, yeah. do you? Would you read it? Yeah, I love it. Would you go find it for me? Because I, I, you know, before I hopped on this podcast, I was like, "Do I have a copy of the book in, the, in, in our apartment?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> I am going to look for that chapter. Okay, it's chapter four. It starts at page one thirty-three. To be monogamous or not to be monogamous. Yeah. So, so I, I'm sure Manisa has another question or two. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let her ask because I've got one or two more before before we close out. Manisa. No, that's fine. You know what? Let me just uh, let me just also throw throw out there too that in answer to that question, I just want to double back on the porn thing. Okay. And people have to understand one thing that may make porn a little bit more comfortable for that you know fifteen percent that says it's not comfortable. Um, people have to accept the fact that it is our sex ed. Yes. It's society, especially now. Especially now. We, don't, we don't get you know, sex ed, sex ed in the schools. Um, I think we all agree we'd like to see progressive LGBTQ friendly. Um, you know, it's, it's like something that, uh, Manisa, you said in the beginning, and I forget his name, uh, Anthony something, or a wonderful sex educator in Pennsylvania who really, you know, said it best when he said, we really teach our kids that we do not want them to have great sex. Mm-hmm. And, true. you know, and, but the funny thing is, is that if you really work in the field of diversity and inclusion and you look at a public high school sexual education program and let's say you have uh, the conservative religion that doesn't want anything to do with the program, doesn't want their kid to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to close down the program for other that might benefit other people, then I'm going to tell you to go, you know what, yourself. But um, <laughs> from an inclusion standpoint, um, if we're going to be inclusive of those other cultures, we have to respect the fact that, you know, they may not want their kids to, to go to that particular program. So there's all kinds of nuances that, you know, can sometimes feel like contradictions, but they're really not. They're just unanswered questions. But, you know, the porn component, it's so important for people to understand that that's, you know, schools are too afraid to teach it. Parents are too afraid to teach it. And the one stat that the data has now told us is that, your community, if you take porn off the internet, wherever you are in the world, or if you, you know, uh, criminalize all aspects of sex work, buying and selling, you will have more rates of sexual assault in your community. It totally and, makes sense. Totally and if makes you, sense. Yep. And if you allow porn to roam free, and if you allow sex workers to advertise as much as they want on the internet, so that they're not driven underground, and frankly, to, not to be dramatic, but very often killed, yeah. Um, under those circumstances. And if you allow for the sex work, buying and selling to be perfectly legal, which mm-hmm. is, I think, in only two places on the planet, New South Wales, Australia, and in New Zealand, 
and they have the lowest rates of sexual assault. Go figure. And well, I have to understand. Yeah, you cannot. You know, all of this you could argue. I know I'm kind of rambling again. Sorry, but no, no, no. all of this, you know, in the big picture, is about the cultures that we live in trying to change biology and you can't no we're going to be attracted to what we're going to be attracted to no matter what cultural imposition you are desperate to try and implement to stop that but do you and i hate to be the debbie downer on this michael but i hear i hear exactly what you're saying but I would also have to add, I do think there has to be a level of responsibility as well, because we do have things such as, you know, sexual deviants who may not like someone may go to these sites and really not understand the, the, for lack of a better word, proper relationship on how to treat a, a woman and may see some of these sites where women are being abused. And then they feel that they have to go. That's what sex is. And when they're with a woman, that's how they should behave. So there, there, there is a level also of responsibility of these things that are shown, um, which I know it's millions and millions and millions of sites out there. We would not, you know, be able to censor all the sites. But I think that goes back into the conversation of, do you feel comfortable with this? Is this something you would enjoy? Um, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I think the answer actually, I mean, I agree with you. And the answer to your question is context. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, porn yes. is going to be there. But what we can do, okay, if we're that uncomfortable, is we can teach the context of how to watch porn. You ask mm-hmm. any porn industry, you know, producer or anything, they'll be the first ones to tell you it's not real. It's fantasy. Uh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you can teach that, you know, developmentally disabled you know, person, you know, like me or whomever, you know, that, you know, don't get so sucked into the equipment size on these people because life ain't like that. Yes. Don't get sucked into the fact that just the genitals are touching because real sex ain't like that. Mm -hmm. Don't get sucked into like all the aggression because the real stuff ain't like that. Mm -hmm. And you teach that. That's, that's, I think the answer to what you're saying Mm -hmm. is, you know, porn is going to be there whether we like it or not. But I can t- tell you a story of, um, of exactly, you know, someone who didn't get the context lecture. And it's not the horror story of jail term, which I know happens. But this was a member of the Manhattan Grass chapter. And there was also a Long Island Grass chapter. So they were like, you know, 10 miles away. So okay. we did a lot of things together. And there was one picnic where, um, shall we call him John? And John was one of these Spectrum computer guys who, let's say you know, didn't go to the gym a lot. And, you know, he sweat a lot too. Mm-hmm. And, but John would always come to a meeting whether the topic was going to be employment or pharmaceuticals, whatever the meeting topic was, he still had to talk at every meeting about how lonely he was. Mm-hmm. Broke your heart, broke your heart, this guy. So we're at this picnic and I'm talking to this speech pathologist, nothing against speech pathologists, but this one was just boring me out of my mind. Oh my God. <laughs> and, I see John out of the corner of my eye and he's talking to this girl from the Long Island chapter. And okay. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I got to get rid of the speed pass. So I go hide behind a tree and like spy on them. Um, <laughs> and, but I couldn't. And I was like, you know, just watching the conversation out of the corner of my eye. And she was really into him. 
Okay. And he, but he was like all contorted. His mm -hmm. arms were shrunk into his side. His head was looking down. He was not smiling. He was standing. He wasn't running away from her. Um, and eventually I just saw her face go from kind of being radiant to mm -hmm. And she left. Mm -hmm. And I finally get rid of the speech pass and I run over to John and just like, John, John, what were you doing? That girl was so into you, man. What, what was going on there? And John goes, oh, no, Michael, I couldn't be attracted to her. She's not a 36, 24, 36. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what it's not needs to be taught. Yeah. 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 That is, mm -hmm. that is, it's a great story, Michael. And it's also, I remember um, my ex telling me when he was in, I think he was in middle school and um, a girl was interested in him and was flirting with him. And another girl told him that this girl was interested in him, but she, he did not know she was flirting. He did not know the girl was interested in him. He realized it, you know, as an adult and like, you know, wanted to hit himself over the head for not having, you know, responded to her flirtation. But, um, you know, I think that there's not only the issue of, you know, being educated or receiving your sex education in porn, but also not understanding when somebody is flirting with you, not understanding when somebody is making like a come on comment to you, you know? And so it's like, we need an entire curriculum, not just your book, but we need an entire curriculum for sex education and dating and relationships for folks on the spectrum who want to be in a relationship and mm -hmm. just feel they have zero skills. We teach driving, right? Mm -hmm. We have parenting classes. We have anger management classes. You know, we have all these other classes for everything. One of the most important relationships anybody's going to have in their life is their love relationships with or sexual relationships where they can do tremendous damage to themselves and to the person they're with, or it can be happy and fun and exciting. But you know, Mona, I got to tell you, I think, this is, I think this is one area where we actually have improved dramatically. You know, I was lucky. Um, first off, I want to thank both of you for so much sharing because um, <laughs> the deal that I made with my wife in order to let, allow me to write the book was that I wouldn't say Jack about our relationship. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, I can talk about what my life was like, you know, beforehand. And mm -hmm. when I was, you know, in high school, I was very active and it was because I was a guitar player because otherwise I wouldn't have even had a social life at all pretty much. Mm. And, and I was, you know, hanging out with some of the bad boys as well. So, you know, medicating some of those autistic tendencies, um, <laughs> but the flirting and all that stuff never resonated with me. Mm -hmm. I never picked up on that. I would always think 24 hours later, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, that mysterious behavior that Jack did to me like 24 hours ago, <laughs> flirting on me. And, you know, opportunity out the window, which was a disappointment. But at the same point, I also found, especially, you know, in college when, it, you know, the, the allure was a little bit more than just guitar, but you know, when honestly, you know, you go to a party and, you know, as, as awful as this may sound to some people, um, you know, because there's a lot of alcohol flowing, maybe some other mm -hmm. stuff going to the college party. Sure. And you're just wandering around the room going, do you want to spend the night with me? Do you want to spend the night with me? You know, and 
you're just kind of playing the math odds. And that was all <laughs> I knew how to do because I couldn't do the right. flirting thing. And thank right. God I was thought of as more talented than I actually was because, <laughs> you know, that was the only way I was going to get a yes, probably. But I just know that I was also, I think, respected because, again, I wasn't after the limp notches on my belt. Mm-hmm. And that physical act was actually a way that I felt so comfortable communicating. Not to say mm-hmm. I was you know, the greatest lover anybody had, but just I know I enjoyed, you know, the sense that I was actually really connecting with somebody because otherwise I wasn't able to outside there. And yeah. that may have been a little bit of what was going on, you know, maybe Manisa with your prior relationship. I don't know. Um, but I certainly, you know, understand that. And the area that we've gotten better at as a society is that we have gone so far away from the obligation and from the demand that we interpret each other's winks and nods. We're gone from those days. We use text now. Yes. You know, we went from mm-hmm. bars, you know, to, yes. you know, online dating, which of course everybody was terrified of. And, you know, initially, and now it's where 98% of the relationships happen and you can save three months off a relationship by what you write in your profile. Mm-hmm. I so agree. We use text and that is heaven. Yes. And you know, what's so funny? Um, You know, I I talk about this with my friends because I've been divorced for three and a half years and we separated um, six years ago. So and during our separation, we dated other people. So I've been on these apps for six years. And one of the things that I've noticed is the app Bumble. For all of you that are listening that are autistic, the app Bumble seems to be the app where I'm finding the most um, autistic men or men who have ASCII traits because the woman has to take the lead. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. And they can have these great conversations online and, you know, plan to meet. And then they may meet with me, either we've done a Zoom call or meet in person. And most of the time, they are so awkward, Michael. <laughs> They're so awkward in person or even on the zoom calls and it's it's again we need some way to like coach or something because these are men that are extremely intelligent they are you know successful in their careers or they really enjoy the work they do or they're creative or whatever and they can text so well on the app and they're thrilled when you know there's a match and then the woman takes the lead but then you meet them in person and they really struggle. I mean, that's mm-hmm. been my experience and some of the other women that I'm friends with. But, you know, maybe we need an online dating course for, for men on the spectrum on how to meet with somebody after you've done all the texting for weeks, how to meet with them and have a successful first date. I don't know. <laughs> well, honestly, Mona, I think the real leadership lies in the LGBTQ community. And that we need to look to them for answers because they're the community that doesn't have all this historical bullcrap to unlearn. We're the ones that have to unlearn a lot of these expectations. Yeah. They they didn't, you know, they came into the world, you know, as a marginalized community that was, you know, hated by half the cultures we had, we had. Yeah. And so, you know, they've basically been able to build a model of their highest expectation without, without, you know, feeling obligated to these historical and cultural norms that so many of us who are straight have to, you know, feel like we have to obey. And it's so hard 
unlearning that we actually don't have to obey that junk. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And my daughter, my daughter's lesbian. She is in a wonderfully loving, um, thriving relationship of over two years with her girlfriend. And, you know, I have learned a lot from her and her friends and it's wonderful. You know, as long as I'm on this earth, I hope to continue to learn and grow. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think your book is going to help a lot of folks do um, both of those learn and grow. I want to ask if Manisa has anything else she wants to ask or share. And then um, I'll ask you, Michael, if there's anything else you want to share. I mean, just personally, Michael, as a 51 year old woman, and I'm sitting here listening tonight and you have really just caused me to reflect on the fallacies and the, the, uh, as you say, we're taught how not to have sex, how not to enjoy sex. You know, be, me being raised in the deep South, you know, there's a, a, a rumor that little girls are given a quarter, you know, and they have to place that quarter between their legs and hold it there for the rest of their lives because that's how tight they have to close wow. their legs. <laughs> I never heard that one. Manisa. Honey, wow. yeah, that's that's in the deep, deep South. And it's so true that we are, are taught almost to hate our bodies and not to enjoy sex. And it really helps me to just be more uh, curious and to open up my own understanding of what healthy, happy, confident sex looks like. So just thank you for bringing that awareness to me. Listen, that's such a beautiful thing to say, Manisa. Thank you. Um, I, I, maybe at another point I'll ask you because I know some of those areas and maybe some other time, you know, you and I can like, you know, shoot it about exactly where you came from. Absolutely. But, you know, <laughs> I think sometimes to like Elizabeth, no, it wasn't Elizabeth. Was it Elizabeth Smart? No, she wrote the book Educated. The person that I quoted in the Tara book. Tara Westover. No, Tara Westover read Educated. You're right. It was Elizabeth Smart that I quoted in the book. Okay. And Elizabeth Smart had been held hostage and raped repeatedly yes. in Mormon, Utah. Mm-hmm. And all she could remember during her days of captivity was the sex ed that she got, which was that you're like a used piece of gum and no mm-hmm. man will want a used, chewed up piece of gum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that Elizabeth Smart could recover from captivity. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, don't know, I don't know if that's a fair word, but, you know, in addition to, you know, being able to get through such negative messaging before her kidnapping is astounding to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and she got married and had children, not just one child, had more than one child. Such an amazing yeah. thing. That is incredible. It is. It is. It is. So, so I, I shared this with, um, I'm going to go from that to something funny and positive, just so we end on a, on a different note. I shared this with Michael when we were preparing for this podcast and I asked my sister and my daughter for permission to share this. And my sister, who's 13 months younger than me, she took it upon herself to get my daughter a vibrator for her 16th birthday. Because my sister is the most sexually positive person probably that I knew growing up. She, you know, all things were out there. So um, she got my daughter the, the vibrator 
And my daughter loved it so much, she made it her mission to buy all her friends their first vibrator for their 18th birthdays. So all the friends that were not supportive of having toys or any kind of vibrator, once she got them for all her friends, and I think she's given out six of them, maybe more now, they thanked her from the bottom of their hearts. Because I will tell you, we are not, we as women, I think, and this is going to be a generalization, are not raised to believe that we can feel pleasure ourselves and with our partners in ways other than, you know, what our parents or our mother taught us or whatever. It's very narrow. I think your book is taking the A to Z for ways in which we can explore our bodies. And there's a lot of pictures in here. Well, and Ha, who did the illustrations, did a great Isn't job. Isn't he great? Isn't oh, he great? Fantastic. So you don't have to get the joy, joy of Sex, which is probably outdated at this point. You can get my, Michael's book. And we all have a right to enjoy a sex life that's thriving and fulfilling if we want to have sex. Mm-hmm. And I will say to our listeners, if you're not getting what you need from your relationship with your partner, please find a way to communicate with them whether you're the neurodivergent or the neurotypical partner because we all deserve pleasure in our sexual relationships michael you get the last word (laughs) well i probably if i had a brain i'd let you let that be the last word but you know you so mentioned you know we've suddenly veered into a parent you know conversation at the last minute and in that vein, I want to first off, you know, thank, you know, thank you for that story. Heck, I'd give them the vibrator when they're 13. But, um, <laughs> and well, you know, it's like, you know, our junk can sing pretty quickly, you know, uh, yeah. you know, your stuff takes a little bit of time. Um, <laughs> I would state also, though, that you have a right to be uncomfortable as a parent with this stuff. Sure. You've been through cultural conditioning, but if your kid is one in 10,000 people that's on the spectrum and that wants to go to an orgy or a sex club and you are not comfortable with that, you have a duty as a parent to go find that crazy uncle or whatever Mm. that is comfortable with it. Because again, we are not going to have that same chance, maybe as, you know, at the great job, the great relationship, yada, yada, yada. And that this may be the best thing we have in our lives. You mm-hmm. can't shut it off. It's just a terrible thing to do to a person. So please, please, please go find the bartender uncle, um, you know, that can yeah. access whatever it is that child should access. And, you know, adult child, obviously, um, right. because bravo to that adult child for feeling comfortable enough to ask for what it was that they actually desire and be in touch with that. And you're, you know, what you said about pleasure, Mona, absolutely true. It's, we have to give each other the permission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe Michael and Melissa, maybe that's why there's so many struggles around sex in neurodiverse relationships 
because those folks who are autistic didn't have that supportive uncle and didn't have that supportive cousin or didn't have a sibling that helped show them the ropes and teach them. And we need it. We need it because both partners may be struggling if their sex life starts out one way when they're dating and then changes when they're married or it's the same throughout, but you know, they could have a better sex life. There's just so many unanswered questions, but we're not going to save the world tonight, but we are opening up the conversation. And Michael, if there's anything else that you want to share in a future episode, you just let me know. You're on. You're on. Huh? I will get out the shamelessly self-promotional website, which is just michaeljohncarley.com. I was going to ask you. And the book is actually not on Amazon because Neurodiversity Press will not sell through Amazon. So you got to go yeah. to neurodiversitypress.com and order the book through there. Awesome. awesome. And I will put that on the show notes. And is there anything else? Are you? Do you have any presentations coming up? Any conferences? Any um, articles you're writing that you want to tell our listeners about? Oh, brother. Uh, well, I just put out an article on the changing face of autism therapy. ABA is down. Peer mentoring is up. That's just come out in Exceptional Parent Magazine. Um, and I put out uh, a piece on the last time I panicked about anxiety and lots of other things on neurodiversity press's blog but i would say for upcoming gigs because i don't have all the dates in front of me oddly enough march is very sexuality heavy on my presentations for um sex therapy organizations and i am off to uh austin minnesota actually for a couple of speaking gigs for uh, new college programs, which are going to be happening. And I'm going to consult for them uh, next week and take three days off from NYU. Awesome. 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 Michael, it was a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to read your book and thank you and Manisa for a great conversation. Thank you, Manisa. Thank you, Mona. Thank you, Michael. We enjoyed having you. And be warm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.